Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Odell Beckham Jr. Now a day after Giants owner John Mara set the NFL on fire when he all but hung a for sale sign on Odell Beckham, he tried his very best to drop his hips and hit that thing with a backpedal. Good luck with that, Jay, because you cannot unring that bell. Not when the player is OBJ. Not when you're the owner and you start throwing phrases around like, I wouldn't say anyone's untouchable. That's a quote. And not by trying to talk circles around it. Here is what he said just 24 hours after he lobbed that initial grenade. And I quote, I don't know how much more clearly I can say it. I don't want him to be traded. I want him to be a giant. But I can't sit here and tell you there's a 100% guarantee that's going to happen. I can't say that about any player. End quote. Yeah, here's the thing. Here's how you can say it more clearly because you can, John. Here's how you say it more clearly. We're not trading Odell. Then Giants GM Dave Gettleman got in on the act as well. Surrounded by reporters looking to get something from the guy who was given the keys to the franchise after Jerry Reese and Ben McAdoo tried to run it into the ground, Gettleman all but corkscrewed himself into the ground when he said this. He's on that team. You you know. And he will be on your team? Hey, listen, I don't know if I'm going to, you know, drop dead of a heart attack in two seconds. <laughs> you know, I hope not. You know what I mean. Although I, I'm, I'm worth more alive than dead now for my wife. But anyhow, no. Hey, so oh. Kidding aside, he's on the team, Kim. What do you want me to tell you? That he's not, that he's not available via trade. He's on the team right now. So he is available via trade. I just said he's on the team. And you can't say whether you want him to continue to be on the team or? Listen, you don't quit on talent. Listen, you do not quit on talent. You're right. You don't quit on talent. But you would for the right price, right? Obviously, this is what they're all saying. The one thing they're not saying is we will not trade him. Because they will for the right price. Otherwise, they would not be throwing around garbage statements like you don't quit on talent. I don't want him to be traded. You would just say, read my lips. He's not available at any price. We're not trading him. And the reason they're not saying that is because clearly he is available and you can get him for the right price. The question isn't whether or not he's available because he is. The question is, should he be? He is your best player. He is a potential Hall of Famer. He is one of the most electric guys ever to do it. So why is this cat available? Because he wants more money than almost anybody who's ever done it. And because he tried to get with the kicking net. And he hit a boat bender in Miami on an off weekend. And maybe allegedly burned a blunt in Paris with a gram model while a mysterious white pottery substance may have been in the same room. Now what about all those things? Are they distractions? Absolutely. Are they negatives? You know it. Are they deal breakers? Not to me they're not. I mean ask the Vikings how trading Randy Moss away in his prime went. Hell, ask Gettleman how letting Josh Norman walk when he was GM in Carolina went. The Redskins paid Norman what Carolina would not. The Panthers' defense drops from number 6 to 26th overall, and then Gettleman was out of a job within a year. Ask me. 
Ask me, the only way I would ever consider trading this guy is if somebody offered an absolute fortune in return because he's a completely different player and they're a completely different team when he's on the field. And if you're in it to win it, you do not give up on a guy that electric unless you can jam somebody hard with a Herschel Walker package. Short of that, you keep this guy. Unless there's a trade that can change the trajectory of the entire franchise, you keep the guy. I understand why the door is open. You want to hear what people are offering, but it better be at least equal value. Otherwise, you do not trade away a 25-year-old Hall of Fame talent. Him getting with the kicking net or getting grammed are not reasons to give up on a guy, especially that guy. So... Bottom line, unless you can dominate that trade, you don't make that trade. Not with this guy. We are joined by Bucky Brooks. Bucky, it's great to have you on. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. It's great to have you on. So we're about a month out from the draft. What is life for you like right now when it comes to evaluating talent and reporting on the draft? How's the next month shape up for you, Bucky? Hey, it's kind of a crazy month. And the reason it's crazy this month is just because the intrigue over the quarterbacks can send the draft into a tizzy. So trying to figure out what is real and what is fake in terms of the news surrounding the quarterback has really been the biggest thing. Outside of the evaluations, we'll get those done. But really trying to connect the dots and see which quarterback is going where because when those dominoes fall, the rest of the draft will be impacted by those decisions. Bucky Brooks joining us. All right, I'm going to get to that in a minute. You're right. That's really intriguing to me. Let me ask you this, though. Let me start with the Giants because you're looking at Odell Beckham right now. And, Bucky, the guy has had more than 1,300 yards in each of his first three seasons. He's averaging more than 14 yards a catch. And when you look at the difference between the Giants' offense with and without him, is there any way you would seriously consider trading this guy? I wouldn't because I think he's one of the more prolific scorers in football. I think it's a huge difference in how they play, how the quarterback plays with and without him. There's no way if I'm going to try Eli Manning out there that I would let Odell Beckham go. But now with the reports out that, A, they, they want two first-round picks, um, people are excited about picks because it's the unknown. I would get two picks, and then I have number two and two additional ones. I don't know. All I know is, I know exactly what I'm getting with Odell Beckham Jr. Yes, the antics and all the other stuff needs to be addressed, and he needs to be uh, a better professional when it comes to that. But there's nothing that you can say about his game on the field. He is one of the top five at the position, and you could argue when he's healthy, top two, three at the position. Man, you just don't let those guys walk out your building. Bucky Brooks joining us. All right, then there's the issue of how much do you pay a guy like that. And you tweeted the other day, quote, explain to me how Odell Beckham isn't a 20 mil plus wide receiver when Sammy Watkins is at 16 mil. Better yet, tell me how Bortles, Keenum, Bradford, Cousins, and so many other quarterbacks are more deserving than him. Oh, I don't see any Super Bowl rings on those quarterbacks' fingers either. Quote, so when other guys are getting that kind of money, how much is Beckham worth? Oh, to me, he has to be a $20 million player. Uh, people say that, oh, you shouldn't use the Sammy Watkins deal as kind of like a standard, but you have to. Sammy Watkins came out in the same draft as Odell Beckham Jr. He was the third overall pick, and he went ahead of Beckham. Beckham is a more accomplished player in many rights than Sammy Watkins. Sammy Watkins is getting, on average, $16 million a year. Well, if Odell Beckham Jr. is a much better player and we have production to prove it, he has to get paid more. And when you look at his production compared to, I guess we'll say, the standard barrier to position, Antonio Brown, you can argue with production and also with 
the going rate of inflation that he is going to be the first $20 million receiver. And even though people say, oh, you shouldn't pay a guy quarterback money, I will counter and say Eli Manning with Odell Beckham Jr. is a 63% completion rate, 69 touchdowns, 29 interceptions. Without him, he's a 60% passer with 14 and 14. You tell me who impacts the game more, him or Eli. Bucky Brooks joining us. All right, before I leave the topic of the Giants, they've got the number two pick in the draft. Who do you think is a better fit for them, Saquon Barkley or Bradley Chubb? Uh, When you look at the Giants traditionally, uh, you would say that a defensive player would be more impactful. They traded away JPP. They need a guy that can be a dominant player. And the last time they picked that high, they took Lawrence Taylor. But I think if you're really saying that this is the last run, you're pushing all the chips in on the Eli Manning deal, then you have to look at Saquon Barkley because – the prospect of trying now, Saquon Barkley with Odell Beckham on the side, Evan Ingram who showed flashes, Sterling Shepard, you now have a dynamic offense in the NFC East. And when you look at the NFC East, for the moves that the Eagles have made, with the Cowboys coming back, when Zeke comes back, you're going to have to be able to score points. The only way the Giants are going to score points is to have a dominant running back to go with a dominant playmaker wide receiver in Odell Beckham Jr. I think that could be the right move for them if they still believe that Eli Manning has two or three more years in him. Fact of the matter is, a podcast like this would not work unless I had the help of a lot of people, including my pals at Stamps.com. Listen, I know a lot of you have your own business. The U.S. Postal Service is an important tool for any business. It reaches every household every single day. Now, Stamps.com is the easiest way to access all the amazing services of the post office because Stamps.com never closes. You can print postage for letters or packages at your convenience 24-7. Create your Stamps.com account in minutes online with no equipment to lease and no long-term commitments. Click, print, mail, bam, you're done. Once again, this is why I use Stamps.com, because it is so easy, it is so convenient, and it saves me so much time. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer, which includes a four-week trial plus postage, and a digital scale. You want to go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, type in Jungle. That's Stamps.com, enter Jungle. I use it all the time. I wish I had started sooner. Stamps.com, enter Jungle. Bucky Brooks joining us, breaking it all down. Of course, you can watch him throughout the week on NFL Network's Path to the Draft is 6 p.m. Eastern. Bucky, you start things off by talking about the quarterbacks. So let's talk about that for a minute. You know, as we get closer, there's talk about maybe four quarterbacks possibly going in the top 10 picks. When you look back on that 2011 draft, for example, Cam Newton, Jake Locker, Blaine Gabbard, Christian Ponder, they all go in the first 12 picks, and only one of those guys worked out. Is there a concern then that teams are going to overreach for quarterbacks instead of just taking the best players? player available absolutely absolutely all of these quarterbacks are overrated all of them have been pushed up the boards because we are fascinated with quarterbacks because of fantasy football and all the other things what potentially is going to happen there are going to be a lot of good players that are left out um, a lot of good players that drop down the boards and those teams that don't need quarterbacks that aren't in the quarterback business they can't wait for these teams to reach up and grab some of these guys because the better players are going to fall to them And just like in 2011, when the quarterbacks were the only ones of those first 12 picks that haven't been pro bowlers and transcendent stars, guys like Von Miller and Patrick Peterson and Cam and J.J. Watt and others, you absolutely want all those quarterbacks to go so you can get a really good player. But unfortunately, because people have said it's a quote-unquote quarterback-driven league, 
these guys are going to reach for quarterback and they can make some mistakes. Huh. I mean, I would, I would imagine things maybe have changed over time or maybe they haven't. As an example, you were in the Seahawks front office back with guys like Mike Holmgren, Ted Thompson, John Schneider. What was the approach when it came to the draft with that team back then? I was always take the best available player. It was always grade the player for the talent that they have and the potential that they bring regardless of position and let's stack the board with the best players at the top. And then the thought was, if you just take the best players, you're going to have a roster full of blue-chip players. And if you have a need, you can trade off what you have in surplus to get that need back. But when you start reaching and manipulating the board to put the best player at a position of need at the top, what happens is you overreach for players, and down the line, your roster is noticeably weaker because you have guys that you took high that had no business being rated as blue-chip players. All right, so then all of that said, how many quarterbacks in this draft, in your opinion, are top 10 players? Best players available, top 10. Two, Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of those guys, um, I could see being borderline first round, top of the second players based on what they have, what their prototypical dimensions are in their games. But the only two, to me, that kind of stand out as like transcendent, uh, star quarterbacks in drafts year after year after year would be Sam Darnold and Josh Rosen. And then I put an asterisk by Lamar Jackson just because he's not a prototypical player, but the things that he does on the field are special. We made a comparison to Michael Vick and those things. The issue with Lamar, I don't know how many guys are willing to kind of buy into the creative mindset that you would need to have to have a quarterback like that as the face of your franchise. Bucky Brooks joins me for another moment or so. So go back to the top two. You were on path to the draft the other day when former UCLA head coach Jim Morris said that if he was the Browns, he would take Sam Darnold as their quarterback. What was your reaction when you heard that? Uh, It made sense because what he was trying to do was really talk about fit and scheme and kind of fit into the city. He was saying that, look, you have Sam Darnold here, a guy that grew up at San Clemente, kind of a blue-collar background, a guy who was – kind of unheralded as a prospect, meaning he was a four-star recruit, but he wasn't a five-star recruit that Josh Rosen was. He goes to SE, Ricky Town is there, beats him out, works his way up the depth chart. So he had to kind of grind and, and, and climb the ranks to go there. When you think about Cleveland in the Rust Belt, the Midwest, that kind of plays well there. With Josh Rosen, you have the dude who was the number one high school recruit at the position, number two overall. Five-star recruit, he has been anointed the chosen one since he was 14, 15, 16 at St. John's Bosco. So he is probably a better fit in a team like New York, the Giants, or the Jets, metropolitan area. He comes from a family of Ivy Leaguers. He is a guy that has a worldly perspective that a metropolitan area would appreciate. And so I think he was really doing Josh Rosen a solid by saying, look, I think Sam may be a better fit here and Josh would be a better fit in New York, but both are going to be really good players. But when you coach one of the guys and you don't say that your guy is the best, people take umbrage with that. But I didn't think, think anything of it. I thought he was actually right in the way that he broke it down in the test. Can I say, I, I could not agree with you anymore. I mean, 100%. That's exactly what that was. And one last thing. When there was a report last week that Des Bryant, Bucky, is working with a route guru to work on his technique and route running. When you hear something like that, I've got to ask you, how much of that is on Des for being at this point in his career and needing to work on his routes? But how much of that is on the coaching staff that they allowed him to get to this point where he needs to do that work? Uh, both people, I mean, both parties are responsible. Look, Dez Bryant should be a pro. 
And when you're a pro, you should always be working on your craft. Not, just like anybody else working a job, you're always working to get better to be the best that you can be. The fact that he's a nine-year veteran, he hasn't worked in the offseason with anyone on becoming a better player, a better route runner, that's on him. But really, the Cowboys are also responsible because coaching requires you to be harder on your players, to demand more from your players, to demand them to be at their best. And so if Dez Ryan thought it was okay to cruise for eight years without working on his game, the message to me is no one in the building told him, Dez, you need to work. No one was honest with him on what the strengths and weaknesses of his game is, where he's at as a player. And so I put that on coaching as well as Dez. Both guys are to blame, but the Dallas Cowboys also have to be held accountable for not pushing their best player to be at his best at all times. Now, I know for a fact that a lot of you listening right now are listening from a job site, and there are lots of different job sites. For instance, if you work on a hot, dusty job site or in a loud, wet kitchen, you know how hard it can be to communicate with those around you. So you have to find another way to do it. Now, with the new Post-it Extreme Notes, you can get your message across and get the job done in any weather condition, no matter where you are. I'm talking rain, heat, and humidity. New Post-it Extreme Notes are water-resistant, and they're made with Dura-Hold paper and adhesive, so they stick to just about anything at all. Concrete, drywall, raw wood, even brick. So no matter what the task on the job site, you can get your message across with new Post-it Extreme Notes. I'm telling you, I know that a lot of you use this show and this podcast to get you through your day. So let me help you get you through yours with new Post-it Extreme Notes. Get them today, once again, wherever you get your Post-it Notes. Trust me on this. In the meantime, why don't we talk Final Four? In fact, you know what? It's the elephant in the room. I'm just going to address it straight up. The Loyola Ramblers have a ton of it. All right, so how do you define it? Magic, momentum, swag, confidence, talent, belief. However you want to describe that mojo, you'd probably be right because they've got so much at the moment. And that's before we get to the fact that Porter Moser has been on this show three times and has done a killer interview all three times. Now, I take absolutely no credit for the run the Ramblers are on right now. It's got nothing to do with me or the jungle karma. That is all on Moser, Clayton Custer, Ben Richardson, Dante Ingram, Marcus Towns, Sister Jean, the rest of that crew. But it is with that in mind that I do want to address something before you degenerates get to it. I want to cut this topic off at the pass. And we are talking about the Loyola Ramblers, which does raise the question, what is a Rambler? Now, the current mascot is a wolf. More specifically, Lou Wolf. Lou, as in L-U, Loyola University. Now, I've got to say, that's pretty sharp. Lou is pretty sharp. However, Lou was not always the mascot. Nope. The previous mascot was... Well, you know what it wasn't? It wasn't a wolf. It was, well, why don't we go to Loyola University of Chicago's library website for a little history lesson. The school adopted the nickname of Ramblers back in the 1920s because the football team traveled a lot to play its games. To the point that it was said that they were rambling around the country. So they became the Ramblers. Sweet. I dig it. It's 1920s. It's pretty fresh, pretty cool. 
Then in the early 80s, the mascot's name wasn't Lou Wolf. It was Bo Rambler. And the mascot costume, and here's where things get a little sketchy. The costume included a giant human head with a shabby hat and a scraggly beard, a suit jacket with a number of patches, and the mascot carried a briefcase. That's right. (laughs) Do you know why that is? Because the name Bo, do you know what that's for? You probably figured it out. What is Bo short for? Hobo. Fan-freaking-tastic, clones. I love it. The school's mascot was a hobo. But wait, there's more. Because according to the library website, in 1982, quote, the Athletics press packet for the season portrayed a bum rambling across the LU logo. That's right, a bum. Their mascot was a bum. It's amazing. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. Now, what's not fantastic is this notion that some of you losers are trying to dig that up as a historical fact and then trying to weaponize it. You're trying to use it as justification for the return of a certain type of humor on this show, which is just not happening. That is why I am going to get out in front of this and address this issue head on. I'm getting it out in the open, in broad daylight. I am shining the bright light of day on this. I am celebrating the rich tradition of Loyola sports. I will not be entertaining jokes about Loyola using garbage cans as basketball hoops, dumpsters as the team bus. I am not interested in hearing from you about how Loyola really shares the rock because they're actually playing with a rock. Just as when a Loyola player is dropping dimes, he is setting up teammates, he's not scrambling for loose change. And no, they do not rock shrimp as Bluetooth earpieces. They do not. They do not have to worry about their cardboard house blowing across the street, Sarah in Providence, or grabbing extra pizza boxes as luggage. If they ever get called for three seconds, it's because they were metaphorically camping in the key and not setting up a tent and sleeping. I've said it before. I'll say it again right now, and hopefully this is the last time ever. There is nothing funny about chronic homelessness. Nothing funny about it at all. And a certain type of humor will never, ever return to the program just because a team used to have a bum as its mascot, reached the Final Four. Loyola is awesome. You're not. Move along. There's a theme. There's a thread. It's running through the show always, but especially today. I want to drive this point home once and for all. This is a sports show. Do not take sports stories and ruin them for your own twisted angles and tired jokes. No one, nowhere, no one anywhere thinks any of this is funny or belongs here. Most of all, me. And last I checked, my name was still on the marquee. No bum smack, regardless of what their mascot used to be. Regardless of whether or not they're the best story ever. That's not who their mascot is anymore, and that's not the way I'm running this house. That's not the way I'm running this show. I'm out in front of it. I addressed it. Do not get it twisted or use it 
with your own agenda. No bum smack. Even if their mascot used to be a hobo. You got to love that. I could not be any more clear about that. And who's the first one through? Dan in Denver. Well, I'm sure he takes heed. Let's find out. War Loyola's mascot taking the net after Loyola cuts it down and using it as a fishing net. It's nice, Dan. Oh, I forgot there is no basket over there. And who's coming next, of course? But Sarah. Hi, Jim. What do you get when you cross Sister Jean and a bum? Answer, none in a box. Hey, Sarah, what do you get when you send me crap like that? Blocked. Fake Kellen Winslow thought that he would participate. He tweets, war ramblers using electronic billboards as Netflix. That's clever. War ramblers. Not hobos. Not bums. How about this? No Rambler smack. Clones, as you know, it's Wednesday, right? Final four on Saturday. Championship game on Monday. Your bracket is already busted up. But there is still a way for you to cash in on March Madness at MyBookie. If you have not signed up yet, it's not too late. It doesn't matter if you've been a player for years. Or maybe you want to jump in right now in time for this weekend. Lay down some money and score big on college hoops. Join thousands of online players and start betting at MyBookie.ag. Are you sick and tired of getting the runaround when you ask for a payout? Then join my bookie today. I'm telling you, you are wasting your time betting anyplace else. You win, they pay, and they do it fast and without hassles. They even have in-game live betting so you can place a bet after tip-off. Join now and my bookie will match your first deposit with a 50% bonus. Simply use the promo code JUNGLE to activate that offer. You want to go to mybookie.ag today. Once again, mybookie.ag today. The final four is Saturday. Get in right now. Play, win, and get paid. The Cavaliers took their talents to South Beach only to get hammered last night by the Miami Heat 98-79. However, The final score was not the most shocking part of that game. Neither was the fact that 95-year-old Dwanye Wade swatted LeBron into the upper deck in the second quarter. How about D. Wade? That was really set up. And and tell him, get it out of here. here. Give me some of that. Ain't no fridge out here right now. That was a heck of a block. And he dapped him up afterwards. Give me that. That's what you like. Give me that right there. Yeah. And guys, that's set up too by Leonard's defense. Did I hear Randall in there? TNT. I thought I heard a yeah. How about That was really set up too. And tell him, get it out of here. Give me some of that. Ain't no fridge out here right now. That's a heck of a block. And he dabbed him up. Randall, what are you doing there? That's what you like. Give me that. That's some old man strength right there. Some old man strength. And then he blocked LeBron again in the fourth quarter. And what's gotten into that guy? He had not one, not two, not three. He had four blocks in 17 minutes. When did Duanye turn into Mount Matumbo? But as crazy as that was, not nearly as crazy 
In fact, not nearly as horrifying as what happened to Kevin Love. When a team loses by 19, sometimes it feels a little dramatic to say, you know, they got their faces caved in. They got their faces smashed in. But in Kevin Love's case, he actually did get his face smashed in. Less than two minutes into that game, he tried to take a charge from Miami big Jordan Mickey. He took a charge, all right, right to the chicklets. No, correction, right to the chicklet. Because all 6'8", 235, uh, Mickey went right into Love's China. The result was horrifying. A word of advice. If you're about to see this, or you haven't seen this, or you're going to go looking for this, or you're going to eat, or think about eating in the next few hours, don't do it. Don't do it. This is a disgusting look. Check it out. Revolting. Disgusting. And especially jacked up. But being the warrior, and if you've seen this, it's, it's crazy. But being the warrior that Kevin Love is, he came right back into the game. But then was removed at halftime. Initially, he was diagnosed with a front tooth subluxation. I'll be honest, I don't even know that that was possible. I'll be even more honest, I don't even know what the hell that is. That is the worst tooth injury that I've seen since Chris Dunn chipped his after taking a chunk out of the court in Chicago. Remember that? As if that weren't bad enough, Love also reportedly had concussion-like symptoms. Yeah, I don't doubt that. I felt concussed just looking at what happened to this guy's dentistry. I mean, damn, it's nasty. It is really, really nasty. Honestly, having your tooth dislocated almost looks worse than losing it altogether. At least when the tooth is out, you can pop it right back in. This looks like either you've got to wiggle it back into place, maybe wrap a string around it, tie it to the doorknob, slam the door, yank it out in order to get it right back where it should be. I mean, my man literally had a dislocated chiclet. And it's just another in a series of bad luck moments for Kevin Love. That was his fifth game back after missing 21 with a busted hand. Now he's got some busted china. And there's no word on whether or not he'll be able to go against Charlotte tonight. And again, this is where that theme comes into play. This is where that thread runs throughout the program. We already talked about Rambler Smack. Before I move on and set this thing up for the next topic or a phone call, let me say this. I am not interested, not, in what you think are funny reactions to this particular injury. What that means is no tweets from Kentucky, no tweets from Alabama about how jealous they all are of Kevin's teeth. I don't need to hear from famous Alaska folk and pop rock singers of the 90s. Nor do I need any witty zingers like we don't see anything wrong with Mr. Love's teeth regards British dentists. Not funny, not interesting, not new, and nothing positive at all. I've covered all of your crappy submissions. Keep moving. There will be no bum smack, and there'll be no smack about people's chicklets. The story here is Kevin Love suffered another injury. He might be concussed. He's got a dislocated chiclet. Bad news for him in a year where he's had nothing but bad luck and bad news for the Cavaliers. Have you seen how well they played since he came back? They were 4-0 since he came back. 
And then they got hammered last night by Miami when he went down. I mean, bad things were happening. Duanye was swatting LeBron. Bad things were happening. That's the topic. That's the story. Not your takes on bad teeth. Rome. Email now. Rome. I was going to come up with a clever joke about jacked up chicklets, but why beat around the bush? Did you know Jewel used to have messed up teeth? Hilarious. Tyler and Charlotte. Yes, Tyler, I did know that. But what's hilarious about that? There are a lot of before and after pictures. There are a lot of celebrities. People in Hollywood, people in the arts that had jacked up chicklets. Then they made it and then they got their teeth fixed. In fact, there's a lot of anonymous people that had jacked up chicklets. And then they got their teeth fixed. That's what people do. If you have bad teeth, you get them fixed if you can afford it. Why is that a thing? Rome. I wouldn't care if I got a tooth knocked out. I have hundreds more. Signed, Steve Buscemi. Steven PHX. Hey, Steve, I, I know you think you're having a great day, but you're not. In fact, because of you, Steve, the rest of us are having a bad day. Man, take the rest of the day off. Just stop, man. Stop emailing me. Stop emailing me, Steve. Hey, Rome, in regards to bum smack, shut it down. Let's go home. Shut it down. Let's go home. Oh, wait. Signed, Loyola's mascot, Liam Vancouver. I said I'm going to cut it off before it becomes a thing. This is not an impromptu Romageddon. This is me checking you losers. This is not an organic Romageddon. We did it once. We'll never do it again. Keep moving. Our Daily Jungle podcast today brought to you in part by Fan Exchange. I love these guys. Hey, let me ask you. Are you thinking about buying tickets to your favorite sports? concert, or theater event. Maybe you want to experience March Madness courtside rather than on your couch. If this is the case, man, bust on over to fanexchange.com for a safe, easy, and reliable experience. A great experience. Tickets purchased on Fan Exchange are always guaranteed. There's no getting to the gate and then worrying about getting in. So whether it's March Madness, MLB opening day, WrestleMania, Coachella, or a Broadway musical, Fan Exchange gets you closer to the action. Find the very best seats at the best prices at fanexchange.com. Use the promo code ROME. Again, promo code ROME and get 50% off the service fees on your next purchase. Fan Exchange. We have tickets. Can I tell you something? I am aware of all things rad. Because every single time a story makes its way around the internet, if a rat is involved, you all run it right back to me on every one of my platforms. You tweet it at me. You email it at me. You put it on my Facebook page. It's always there in droves and especially on Twitter. And it's there until I acknowledge it. So yes, I saw the story about a rat that took a chunk out of a dude's digit at Disney World. How can I miss it? You won't let me miss it. But what does that have to do with sports? Absolutely nothing. But for the sake of proving a point, I'll keep an open mind to the sporting connection that I might be missing. Maybe this is the one time, the first time ever, you're all right and I'm wrong. All right, I'll play along. I'll keep an open mind to the idea that 
this may in fact have a place on this show. But when I'm done laying out the story, why don't we just determine who knows what the hell they're talking about and who doesn't? How about that? I'll keep an open mind. You try and do the same thing. Here is the story. Galen Haldeman and his wife, Carol, were just getting off the Buzz Lightyear ride at Disney World when, according to reports, a, quote, large rat ran into a gift shop. This is the actual report now. A large rat ran into a gift shop near the exit of the ride. Somebody yelled, rat, rat, and then kicked the rat to infinity and beyond. To infinity and beyond. So where does that rat land? Where does that rat land? Apparently right near Carol. And according to the lawsuit, quote, just as the rat was about to bite into Carol's arm, Her husband, Galen, grabbed the rat and yanked it off. As he did so, the rat bit into one of Galen's fingers. Galen had to twist the rat's neck, and the rat fell to the floor where someone threw an empty plastic container over it. End of quote. But not the end of the story. Because now that couple is suing Disney World, the rattiest place on earth, For 15 GUR. 15 GUR because Galen is claiming medical expenses, disfigurement, and mental anguish. Mental anguish. Come on, brah. Mental anguish. Are you having rat flashbacks? Is there some sort of rat PTSD? You know, after you knocked off or defeated an animal like one one one-thousandth of your body size. I mean, do you need professional help to deal with that? Mental anguish. Let me say about mental anguish. The only person suffering mental anguish from a large rat biting your finger is me, Van Smack. Because I'm the one who's got to hear about it and then address it on my program, my sports talk radio show, which is also on TV and in space. So once again, let me ask you clones, what the hell does any of that have to do with sports? I'm waiting. What's the tie-in with sports? Where's my justification for talking about that? Where's your justification for tweeting me about that all day long? And you can stop trying to make it a sports story by thumbing out your stupid tweets and emails that it wasn't even a rat. Why are you talking about a rat, Rome? It was Corey Pavin. Rome, what does a rat have to do with this story? That was Randy Johnson. Rome, that wasn't a large rat. That was a large Gary Gaetti. Per usual, I know your tweets before you thumb them out. I know what you're going to write before you write it. Again, I am right. You are wrong. A rat chomping on a man at Disney World has nothing to do with sports. So please, please stop flooding my at mentions with stories about rats. And can we please get back to talking about sports? It's 2018. The rat family is not coming back. This is not a sports story. We all make mistakes. I made a mistake. I've owned this mistake. I should have never created a family of people in sports that look like rats. All own mine. You own yours. You need to do it now. Turn the freaking page and let's talk sports. I mean, God, at least the XR4TI has got my back on this. Isn't that right, crew? Let me check on the other side of the glass. Oh, and look at that. Are you watching on CBS Sports Network? There is an idiot with a rat head. An idiot with a rat head. 
An idiot with a rat head and a cat tattoo. Hey, Hawk, are you one of us or are you one of them? That rat head that you're rocking and looking at me through the glass would suggest that you're more them than you are us. Hey, Hawk, if you want to go hang out with the clones, you go right ahead all day long. Don't let me stop you and don't let that door hit you in the ass on the way out. Alvin could very easily slide one seat over and do your job and his. Hey, Hawk, take that ridiculous mask off. In fact, don't, Hawk. I don't want to see your face. Leave it on, Hawk. I don't want to see your face. Clones. An impromptu Romageddon did not break out. You're not having fun. This is not a good show. Luckily, there are some interviews coming up. This email says, hey, Jim, I just heard we're doing an impromptu Romageddon. Have I missed the fat guy section yet? Yours, a delephant. Hello, it's me. I don't know. I, I'm more mature than many of you. I'm more intelligent than many of you. I'm more responsible than any of you, many of you. I have different sensibilities than most of you. I don't find any of this amusing at all. We are joined by UAB head coach Bill Clark. Bill, it's nice to have you back on. How are you? Great, Jim. How are you? Doing great. Doing great, Bill. I want to get you back on so we can talk about how things are because yesterday the Birmingham City Council voted to help fund a new downtown stadium that you're going to occupy in the future. So first of all, what was your reaction when you heard that news and exactly what does that vote mean for the future of your program? So it, it's really hard to put into words. You know, and, and what's neat about this whole story is it was just a bunch of groups that came together. You know, our new mayor, uh, really helped build a coalition. It's uh, the BJCC, which is a uh, the group that has the civic center and is also going to build this stadium. Um, and then our city, our county, even our state government got together and to build this stadium, which I think obviously it's, it's huge for us, but just such a big deal for uh, the city of Birmingham. I mean, Bill, the whole thing is so amazing. You and I have talked about the journey of the program and your own personal journey as part of this. I mean, it was not that long ago after the final game of 2014, to be exact, when the school dropped the football program. Now we're talking about the fact that not only is the program back, not only did you go to a bowl game, but there's a new stadium on the way. I mean, how remarkable is this entire thing? Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, you talked about it, you know, the, we, we laughed, so who's going to play your part in the movie? I mean, I think this is just the, it really is the next huge step for for our program. And, um, you know, this is, you know, this, this city loves sports, you know, specifically college football. And, um, you know, I just think they're so deserving of a, of a great venue. And, and Legion Field was a terrific place and historic. But, you know, it's just time for something new for our city. Our city's growing and uh, expanding. I think this is really the next step. And then our, you know, UAB is really, you know, we've got about three to $400 million worth of growth going on campus you know, obviously our new facility and all that is brought to us, you know, for our program. So it, it really is like fairy tale. We're talking to Bill Clark, UAB football coach. What about the season itself? For instance, when you and I spoke in December, you were coming off your first season back after that two-year hiatus, preparing for your bowl game. I know you're looking forward to the coming season, but when you look back on last year and what it meant to you and the program, what kind of thoughts and memories do you have? You know, from that first game, running back out there, you know, we set a record. You know, we had about 45,000, 46,000 fans at the first game. And, you know, we, we were undefeated at home. We, we led the conference in attendance. You know, we had some big some big last-second wins and, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a really good conference. So, you know, so proud of that group of players that believed and, 
uh, you know, just exceeded expectations so much. And, you know, obviously we're, we're in spring training looking toward this next year, but looking back, just, just always will have great memories for that group and, and, you know, what they did for our, for our school and our community. You know, when you look ahead to next season, too, look at what you have coming back. 32 seniors, 17 returning returning starters, 10 of 11 on offense, and you've got talent and you've got experience coming back. So when you look at what this group did last season, how good can this team be going forward? Are we talking top 25 good? You know, I don't know. We've got a, we've got some uh, some holes to fill on defense. We lost some really good players. Uh, I tell you, offensively, you know, we've got, you know, basically the whole group back, and then we added about six or seven mid-year guys. So, you know, the offense should be, you know, much improved and, and, and did a solid job last year, so don't want to take away from them. And, and then defensively, you know, we've got a lot of those guys back and our specialists are back. So there's going to be a different expectation. And, you know, and, of course, the teams we play against, are, you know, they're, we're not going to sneak up on anybody. So, you know, if, we'll, if this group will keep working, they're working really well right now. And, uh, you know, I think we'll have a chance to do some special things. UAB head football coach Bill Clark, my guest. You know, when you look at the offense, it includes running back Spencer Brown, who was a freshman All-American last season. He rushed for more than 1,300 yards. He had 10 touchdowns. He's dropped a little bit of weight in the offseason. So what's it going to take for him to go from an elite freshman to an elite player, and can you see it happening this season? And, you know, I think he can. I think, one, it's just great to have all those old linemen and tight ends back that will be blocking for him and, uh, you know, we've had some other good running backs come in that, that, you know, we'll kind of see what they do, which I think maybe will take a little bit of load off Spencer as well, where it's not, you know, all him. But he's really had a good off offseason. Uh, you know, I think he really now sees kind of what it looks like and, um, you know, and wants to take that next step. You know, we had a huge pro day here. You know, we did our pro day uh, on the same day that Alabama and Auburn did on the next day, and we had all the NFL scouts represented. And, with 32 seniors coming up next year, it was really good for those guys and even young guys like Spencer to see, you know, what that combine and, and getting ready for that next step in the NFL looks like. And, you know, I think guys like him that have those aspirations, you know, it, it really encourages you to, to practice well and train well and do all those things. So, you know, hopefully he's on that path. You know, Bill, one more thing about him. It's, it's what he does on the field. That's obviously key. It's significant. But the fact that he's from roughly 20 miles up the road is something else, too. So he might not only be one of the faces of the program. How valuable is it to have one of your stars being somebody who is from the area? No, I think that's huge. You know, that was a cool deal about Jordan Howard, even though I only had him for 2014. You know, he was a local kid. And, you know, there's so much talent right here around the Birmingham area. Football is very important. You know, Spencer was a guy from, a, you know, a, a middle-sized high school, gone about not far away. Uh, excuse me, Mortimer Jordan, not too far away. And, uh, you know, just, you know, his family can come see him play. Uh, you know, I think he was in their Christmas parade this year. And, you know, I, you know that's what you want, just that, you know, that local guy does good. And, and you know, he's very humble. And, and that's, you know, I, I know they're proud of him. So let me finally ask you this then. I mean, you told Dennis Dodd of CBS Sports that in the aftermath of the program being shut down, you said, quote, I thought UAB was literally like a lot of places. They're on hard times. They need somebody to reinvigorate them. I had to say it sounds arrogant, but they needed me. They needed a local guy, end quote. Bill, I would say that doesn't sound arrogant at all. It sounds confident. And now that the program is back and you're preparing for your second season, how proud are you of the job that's been done in bringing this program back, not only bringing it back, but bringing it back as quickly as you have yeah it's I'm, I'm very proud you know and just i think one of the best things is I, I say a lot of times good people getting together and doing good things and i think that's what's happened in this you know even this stadium you know you see people stepping up from 
local leaders and, and really starting to get the vision of, of what can happen when a school and a town and everybody works together. And, you know, we said all the time, athletics is not more important than the degree of their family, but it, but it's important. And, you know, if you use it for the right reasons, which we think we do, I think, you know, it's just a great catalyst to, for growth for your city and your school. And, and it's, it's definitely something I'm, I'm proud to be part of. John Morosi is my guest. John, great to have you back. How are you? Jim, I'm doing outstanding, my friend. Happy opening day. Happy Final Four week. And, and yes, Ghost Rider came up yesterday in a, in a conversation I was having, and I, I just went with it, mentioned it on, uh, on Twitter. And Samuel L. Jackson played Jamal's father. Who knew? <laughs> who knew? All right, so for those who don't remember it, exactly what was Ghost Rider and why is it so special to you? <laughs> well, Jim, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge to explain it. The, the, the premise, though, is there was a group of kids in Brooklyn, probably like seven or eight kids, teenagers, middle school age, and, and they were able to communicate with this friendly ghost who helped them read and make sense of complex ideas. Uh, and, uh, and it was a great show on PBS that for me, growing up in my home, Jim, we were limited to an hour of TV a day. Mm. So I basically had to watch, uh, I got a half hour of ESPN, and then a half hour of PBS. Uh, that was the mandate was no more than uh, a half hour of non-PBS TV. So it was basically a half hour of ESPN and then Ghostwriter Square One or whatever all awesome uh, weekday programming we had back in the day. Yeah, and look at you now. Your folks knew exactly what they were doing. You work for the MLB Network, the NHL <laughs> Network, Fox Sports as well. All right, John, opening day is tomorrow. You are always one of the more upbeat, more energetic guys around. So how are you feeling right about now with the first pitches of 2018 coming in in less than 24 hours? I'm ecstatic, Jim, and I'm ecstatic because of a couple things. Number one, I think back to last year and the great image of the top two finishers in the AL MVP vote, Aaron Judge, who looks like he was born to play sports, and then Jose Altuve, who's five foot six, he's shorter than me, and it was a great picture of these two amazing people shaking hands at second base and is celebrating the amazing diversity in our game. I, I just love that. Uh, I love that about the way they both represent our games. The game's in great hands. We've got great stars. The other part is urgency. We've got the Yankees who have come in and they have added Stanton to join with Judge. They've got a lineup for the ages. Urgency now in the Bronx to really have this rebuild come to fruition. But the Red Sox, they had J.D. Martinez, so you got a very competitive American League East. And then, Jim, I think my personal favorite storyline, the National League. You've got urgency with Clayton Kershaw, the final year of his contract before he can opt out of his deal with the Dodgers, and Bryce Harper, last year of his contract. So no matter what happens, one of those two teams is going to be entering an offseason in which their star player may be leaving without them winning the World Series. So there's a lot on the line for the Nationals, the Dodgers, and certainly the American League for the Yankees and Red Sox. And, oh, by the way, the defending World Series champion Astros trying to become the first repeat champion we've had in baseball since the year 2000 with the Yankees. And they might be better. John Morosi joining us. Now, John, also, in addition to all of that, and you covered a lot of real estate right there, you tweeted earlier today, Yadier Molina will be making his 14th straight opening day start, which breaks the franchise record for most consecutive opening day starts at the same position. Anytime you break a record like that, it's significant. What's it say, though, when you break that record as a catcher? Jim, I'm really glad you asked because Yadier Molina, we sometimes focus so much on what's new, what's different, what's exciting, and we forget to appreciate what is constant, what is enduring. And Yadier Molina, in my opinion, a Hall of Famer, is enduring. You mentioned the, the, the number there and, and the fact he's breaking Lou Brock's franchise record. How about this? With 14 straight starts at catcher, 
he is now going to be one off the all-time record for consecutive opening day starts by one catcher for one franchise. He'll be at 14. The all-time record is 15. Remarkable. Also, you think about Yadier Molina. I love this note as well, Jim, about him. The last opening day catcher the Cardinals had, other than Yadier Molina, is his current manager, right. Mike Matheny, in 2004. So Yadier has been behind the plate every single year since 2005. Again, one behind Ray Shock's record with the White Sox, which was 15 straight. John Morosi joining us. That's an amazing number. Listen, you mentioned the Yankees and their lineup. That's been the talk of the entire offseason. But, John, they start without first baseman Greg Bird for six to eight weeks. How concerning is that loss? It is concerning because the Yankees, and it's a great point, Jim, because the, as much experience and star power as they've got with Judge and Stanton, and of course, CC or Sabathia in the rotation, D.D. Gregorius, as good as he's been in the, in the cleanup spot, the back half of that lineup uh, is, is, in some cases, unproven. Uh, and it's going to be Tyler Wade getting a lot of repetitions there at second base for them. Uh, and at first base, as you mentioned, the, the absence of, of Bird means that Neil Walker probably slides over and gets a lot of at-bats at, at first base. So it's going to press some people into more prominent roles that maybe the Yankees weren't expecting. All that being said, Jim, I, while I am concerned about Greg Bird, if I'm a Yankee fan who is somewhat nervous about the hype, the biggest thing I'm keeping in mind is the rotation. And CC Sabathia getting up there in years, great pitcher, great guy, but he's getting up there in years. Uh, Masahiro Tanaka's been pitching with that partially torn UCL for a long time. Jordan Montgomery now just coming into his second year. So there's a little bit of uncertainty there with the Yankee rotation, but I love their bullpen depth. They've got a number of guys that can close back there. Uh, even beyond Aroldis Chapman in the ninth, they've got Canley who can close, Robertson, Batansis, one of the deepest bullpens anywhere in baseball. So I like the Yankees to win the World Series, Jim, but I'm a little bit worried about their rotation more so than the lineup. John Morosi joining us. You like the Yankees to win the World Series. Now, John, speaking of hype, Shohei Otani is going to make his Major League pitching debut on Sunday against Oakland. Listen, what are reasonable expectations for him as a Major League rookie this year? Jim, it's a great question, and I, I would have told you earlier on in the, in the beginning of spring training that, that I would have expected him to be at least adequate in both hitting and pitching, that he could do it. But I'm nervous. I'm nervous more about the hitting than the pitching. At the plate, he's got only four hits in Cactus League play, all singles. If you compare what his split screen looked like in Japan to what he's doing in spring training, it's just not the same attack mentality. It's, a, it's his stance just seems a little tentative to me, Jim. So that's a concern. I wonder if he's going to really be able to put the mechanics into play and also just knowing the pitchers. It takes so much time to build that mental Rolodex. All the video we've got in the game now, you still need that in the batter's box experience, I think, in many cases, and Otani lacks that. I do think that from a pitching standpoint, the stuff is all there. Scouts have told me the, the pitches are coming out of his hand just fine, but the location has been a little bit off. I think he needs some time to work the location in. The question then comes, though, Jim, are the Angels prepared to sit him down after that long courtship and say, Shohei, listen, we need you more on the mound than, than offensively. Let's just put the hitting to the side for now and focus just on pitching. Uh, he's done it in the past where he's had different focuses for different times of his life where he's really delved into the hitting versus the pitching. But, Jim, that's a hard thing to ask somebody to do after such a public courtship and everything that went on in spring training and, and over the wintertime. It's a very high-profile move. A lot of eyes right now on Billy Epler and the 
manager, Mike Sosha. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how they handle that thing. And as you might imagine, Mike Sosha is not saying very much about that. He's handling things the way he normally does. But, John, I agree with you. He has not looked good with a bat in his hands this spring. Listen, one last guy I want to ask you about before you go. The Philadelphia Phillies recently signed Scott Kingery to a six-year, $24 million deal before even playing a major league game. He's a guy who's been compared to Dustin Pedroia. What do you make of that comparison? What do you make of his game and skill set? First, Jim, the comparison is spot on. I had a chance to watch Kingery play and talk to him just about 10 days ago. Uh, impressive young man. I, I love his, his competitiveness. He, he told me that uh, his parents grew up as Arizona State graduates and, and big Sun Devil fans, and he wanted to go play at ASU, but they didn't recruit him. So he goes down to U of A, and he told me, I, went, I wanted to make ASU regret it every time I played them. So I love that competitive nature about Scott Kingery. And I also think, Jim, this overall move towards trying to lock up your notable young players before they even get to the big leagues, this allows them to be in the big leagues on opening day, and it gives them some financial security. Um, it, it's tough because we see in many cases teams will hold players back until they hit that free agent mark later in April to make sure they buy that extra year of service, as we saw with Chris Bryant in the past and Ronald Acuna right now with the Braves. But this gets a top-end talent to the big leagues sooner, and for a young man, $24 million before he's played a game in the big leagues, God bless him, a great amount of security for his family. So I think for each individual player, Jim, they've got to make that choice for themselves. Shoot, John, can I hit you with one more thing on the way out the sure. door? Been a really unusual offseason in terms of free agent signings. Big names signing late. Some are even still available. So what do you make of the way that's played out? And then do you expect guys like Greg Holland or Jose Batista to land someplace soon? Well, it's a great job, Jim, of tying everything together because I think that the uncertainty about the way the free agent market works and and the the later deals and maybe the deals not coming in where, where players expected maybe helps precipitate deals like we saw with Kingery, where free agency used to be the thing that the players were striving for for their whole career. They were desperate to get there, but it hasn't worked out for a number of players now, and so I think that does incentivize more and more players to, hey, sign that deal if you're comfortable where you're at sign your extension, and you don't have to worry about whatever interesting intricacies are occurring in a particular market in a given year. So I think it's a good play by Kingery in that regard. But I think Holland, I, I love the Cardinals for him or the Angels. Bautista, maybe the Rays, although it seems as though that, that has gone lukewarm here of late. I think we're seeing, Jim, in general, it's such a young man's game right now. You've got great guys like Matt Holliday seem to be moving their way out of the game right now. It is a young man's game, so promote them early, pay them early in the case of Kingery, and, and enjoy and appreciate all this great young talent we've got in the game right now. This is the kind of analysis you can get from him on MLB Network and NHL Network and Fox Sports. He is a true renaissance man, John Morosi. John, great to have you on. Enjoy opening day, and always good to have you here in the jungle. Jim, it is always a pleasure. You are phenomenal at what you do, and it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you You so too, much. John. Great to have you on. Good night now! How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want taste you love.